I think you sing pretty well for people with masks on. Sounds amazing. How I have missed that. I hope you've missed it too. We, we're in the midst of a generation, Gen X, that's not a church. And we've known this for years, decades, really. Um, I don't know what it does to you to come back to something you've lost that has emotions like I hope hymn singing does for you. Um, but I, I hope, I believe, I think, that it is that spark rekindled among us here, not just at this congregation, but wherever the word has been something that was sort of almost kind of about to be lost, that wherever we've retained it now, there's a conviction that wasn't there before. And we can be like the, the seed that sprouts up quickly, but never sets down any roots. And so when the sun comes, when the persecution comes again, it, it scorches them and they go away. And we can do that. Or we can build upon the soil we found, which is good soil. But which realizes that for all the things going on, the lordship, dominion of Jesus Christ has not changed, nor will it. With that said, I mean, I got multiple directions that I want to take you today to lead us toward St. Peter's very appropriate words for us and really a gut check on what I would call, at least in the LCMS, the last 60 years of what we assume Christianity is. And certainly going further than that, that then, going further back than that then, uh, a movement called pietism, which had its ups and downs, but has certainly been there pushing us in certain directions that I would say have made us frail. That the American Christian, and particularly the American Lutheran, is frail spiritually. We are weak. We do not know what we believe. It's a strange thing. Who doesn't like their own beliefs? But Lutherans apparently have been and can be them. Now, I'm not trying to accuse you personally, nor am I completely losing my mind as I look for my water bottle, which has vanished. There it is, to keep from coughing on you. And that's all I got. The stability. The stability. Psalm 18, verse 2 has been our verse for the year. And as I talked about last week, I haven't spent enough time with it with you. And I'm not going to spend a ton today. But I'm going to read a few of these pieces again. That our Lord Jesus Christ is our rock. Built on the rock. That's what we did when we stood firm and decided to make the word of the Lord and his sacraments our identity as a congregation. He is our fortress, it says in verse 2 as well. And I can't help but think that with last year being the year we remembered our Lord is our rock, this year is the year he's teaching us he's our fortress. Now, I don't know if 2021 will be the year of the deliverer. I doubt that. Or the next year, the year of the shield, or the year of the stronghold, or the year of the trumpet blast. But I do know that all of these things are absolutely who God is for you, your God. And that the frailty of our current condition has to do with not believing that. Not believing he's our rock and nothing can move us when we stand on him. Not believing that he is our fortress. Nothing can harm us when we're in him. Now we believe it in like a, yes, I believe it. Let me pass the test kind of way. But do we believe it when it actually comes to bear, when the fear comes to you? I found fear like I've never known Friday night. I watched Tucker Carlson, second time ever. I have never seen such brutality captured in images. I don't even want to describe what Americans have done to each other 
in the name of, I don't know, God knows what. I know it made me very nervous for my country. I know that falling statues and burning flags are just the surface of an unrest that is clearly there. And we could point our fingers at a million things, but let me tell you, if you teach a whole generation that they're accidental monkeys, what reason do they have not to bash your face in when you're in their way? And we have done this. Professors at universities have been warning about this on campuses for at least three to four years. Go Google Evergreen State University a couple years ago. See what happened. Or better, listen to Joe Rogan interview Brett Weinstein, the prof who was there and was the heart of all of the attacks. Brett Weinstein is a liberal's liberal. And yet he could not stop Marxism effectively from driving him out of his position at that school because he stood on science and believed that various people with various DNA backgrounds have similarities to each other. And that wasn't good enough for the social sector because that was, you know, right, racism. And so what he thinks is gonna happen is we are on an all out assault against knowledge in an attempt to destroy civilization. Some are at least. Now, again, you look at it, what on earth? Pastor Fist, that sounds pretty conspiracy-esque. Yeah, it does, it does. Um, I also know that the FBI invented the term conspiracy theory in the 60s to stop people from looking into Kennedy. It's where the word came from. So who do you trust? I've been saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. How do you know and why? And I'm going to keep saying, I know who you can trust. I, you can trust the words of the scriptures to be true at all costs and in all circumstances. To the level that, to the level that. When you think about martyrdom right now, my guess is it makes you scared. Makes me scared thinking about somebody killing me. I've started pondering it ever since I started doing a little yoga in the mornings and ended up doing this thing where I lean on my neck and have my feet in the air. And I was looking at my feet one morning thinking, why am I doing this? <laughs> and I thought of St. Peter who was crucified upside down. I thought this must be kind of what he saw. And then I thought, no, I have my head up and I can see my feet. He would have been truly upside down, nailed to a cross. That kind of thinking scares me. And yet, it does so less these days. As I come to terms with my own mortality, which COVID clearly has given me time to reckon with, and turning 42 at the same time and having my father declining in health and potentially dying the same year, all these things make me think about death quite a bit. But then again, don't we live in the valley of the shadow of death? And why should my thinking about death lead me to despair or fear? So again, the more that I'm driven to not trust anyone nearly so much as I trust the scriptures at least, and to combat my fear that the world keeps telling me, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. As I keep confronting that with the word of God, I find that there is less fear of man. There's not less fear, and there's no less temptation to fear man. But it's hard to fear man while saying he is risen with conviction. It's hard to fear man while saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is my rock and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Any fear that's there is unbelief. And I know what to do with unbelief. Ignore it in me. And focus on what did believe when I spoke. And let that be the truth that guides me and binds me to Christ. As statues fall, as flags burn, as the federal global hegemony is in turmoil and decay. What do I mean by that? Large nation states with power that nobody can fight against, and they are fighting against each other. We should acknowledge this is nothing new. 
The Old Testament prophets are hard to read for a number of reasons, but one of them is like every chapter is like against the this and that peoples. And they rage at you, you this and that peoples, you always do this, but God will bring you down for these reasons. And we're like, I don't even know, who are these people? It doesn't mean anything. But what you should take from this is that the prophets see groups of people as one when they share an identity. And they call that a nation. Now we've taken this to mean, well, a country with like constitutions and militaries. That's not what the Bible's getting at. Nor is the Bible getting at what you might call racism. It's not really about that at all. It's not about how one set of ethnicities is good and one set of ethnicities is bad and how someone's got the mark of Cain on them or some nonsense like that. But it is about how groups of people tend to share similar ideas. And those ideas can be good or bad. And they can cause conflict and death when groups come into running into each other. We know that. We know from the Bible pretty clearly that the best mankind ever does is kill each other. Like the most peaceful times in all of history are when on the fringes someone's getting killed. And in the middle it's safe. That's been the USA for 100 years or so. Huh? Is it safe now? You make that decision. But don't be surprised by the nations being in turmoil and their powers not lasting or not being able to be what they promised them to be. When God comes and says, you nations through the prophets must repent, what he basically says they got to repent of is thinking too highly of their thinking. If you don't think the U.S. has been doing that for a long time, you aren't paying attention. Idolatry is to think too highly of your thinking, to believe too firmly in what you assume, and to not let the word of God be your foundation, nor let reason even guide you, and you see that as well today. So again, you can scream about the powers and all the thing that's going on. I mean, that's there. You can remember that God is your rock and he's going to protect you through it all. And you can hear Peter when he says, oh, well, let's start with verse eight. He says, be sober-minded. That phrase sober-minded has been in my gut. And Peter's saying it here for a while. I mean, I, I, I read the Bible as a pastor, right? So you come across these verses and it's your job to ponder them. Pardon me, I'll need another tissue. It's your job to ponder them. And so you let them rattle around, but you really focus on those things that strike you as interesting. And so what does it mean to be sober-minded? Does it have to do with alcohol? As a pastor who likes his beer pretty much, um, I would worry about that. Well, if I've had a beer and I'm reading this, am I breaking the law? No, I don't, I don't think that's really what's about all. Beer makes you not sober because beer causes you not to think straight or whiskey or what have you. And sometimes on a Friday afternoon, it's okay to not think straight by a lake for a little while. But you don't want to live not thinking straight. And again, that's just it. So to be sober-minded is to think in a clear direction, to have truth as something you can stand upon, to be able to understand what you see, which is what makes the white noise so crazy, because you don't know. And increasingly, they're like, yeah, we lied to you last week, but believe us this week. So what do you do? You be sober-minded and watchful. Because the adversary, the devil, not, not COVID, not the CDC, not Trump, and not whoever. The devil prowls. What, you ever watch a, like your cat prowl? Do you have cats? They see the squirrel. And they're they're going to go, right? All they want at that moment is instinctual hunger to be fed. There's no like, I wonder if the squirrel's a nice guy and has a family. Right? There's none of that. It's just food. Okay? So the devil prowls like a lion. A lion wanting food. You're the food. 
He looks to devour you. Now, as an aside, oh, I am so thankful that in my discovery of various psalms and working to memorize Bible verses, I've stumbled upon Psalm 91, which says, you shall tread upon the lion and trample the serpent underfoot, for he will answer you when you call to him. I love that, because that means that though he be a roaring lion prowling, I know I'm going to tread right over the top of him. In fact, didn't the introvert said the same thing this morning? Maybe, no, it was Micah. Here he is. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And with that knowledge that under the feet pierced on the cross, your iniquities have been treaded by Jesus, so you also may walk over the accusations of the adversary, even when they're true, even when he's right about how bad it is. So it looks pretty bad. Be sober, be watchful. He prowls, resist. I cannot say that without thinking of the actor whose name I don't know, who plays John Luke Picard, at least three or four years ago, after Trump first got elected, shouting, resist, resist, resist. And I was like, you're a British guy. What are you doing? Why do you care? But I'll say, whatever emphasis, thank you, my friend, has been put into resisting anything on either side of our political debates here, it is only half of the urgency with which we must resist the lies of the devil. Not some crazy secret thing in a dark corner that you can't know, but when the scriptures say this and people come along and say, ah, nah, that's it. Resist. Firm in the faith, knowing that as you believe these things differently from the world, that you're set apart from the world, that you're not like the world because you think differently now because the word has redeemed you, regenerated you. As all of that happens, know that you're going to suffer for it. Christianity does not make your life better. It is not an open checkbook from God. It is a set of clear 2020, ha, catch the pun, eyes. You can see in a way that the world can't see. You can judge truly in a way the world can't judge. Judge not lest ye be judged on your own opinion till the day is over. But judge upon what God has already announced to be judged. You believe that. Resist, firm in the faith, knowing that you may indeed suffer, but that cross of suffering is the one shared by, text says, experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, please, when it says your brotherhood throughout the world, do not assume right now. This means from the time of the fall until the time of Christ's return, to be a Christian is to understand that this life is suffering. I'll say it poetically. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This suffering is shared by every human that has ever lived, and especially doubly with clear eyes by every Christian that has ever lived. You know this. And you also know, verse 10 says, after you have suffered a little while. Now, please hear that little while language as being sort of a offhanded New Testament way of talking about till Jesus gets back. A little while. The devil in Revelation has a little season during which he may deceive the nations as compared to Christ's thousand-year reign. Right? You can see the contrast there. For a little while, while we wait for his return, the devil seems to be in charge. But after this suffering for a little while, verse 10, the God of all grace, that's your God, who is the Father of Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, already done, called you, spoken to you, named you, baptized you. He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's put you in Jesus. Peter's saying it's already done. 
And now what that's going to mean is the rest of the verse. It goes from past has been done to future will be done. This God will himself for things restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. We could spend 15 minutes on each of those. Restore, put you back the way you're supposed to be. Confirm, this isn't confirmation class, it's keeping you in the faith. Strengthen, that is when you're weak, he's going to build you up and then establish, built on the rock. You have a foundation that cannot be shaken. Christ himself is risen never to die again. To him be, it says, dominion forever and ever. And in my personal lectionary, I have drawn an American flag around the world dominion because of two reasons. Dominion as a word is best symbolized by what the American flag symbolizes. It's the reason people are burning it. It's the reason people are not wanting it burned. There is a dominion, a power that exists, which protects or hurts others. That power is what you might call a prince or a leader or a warlord even. All those things are dominions. And what I want you to know is that while the American flag does reign with dominion some places in the world today, it doesn't say to America be dominion forever. It says to him, Christ be dominion forever. And so you need to know this, American citizens, and I don't like this news, but it's what we got to do. Thy will be done. Should the day come when he takes away this country, we're still going to be here, St. Paul Lutheran Church. hundred years, thousand years, I don't care. It doesn't matter. The dominion is Christ's. And again, out of love, we will, we will sacrifice and bend over backwards, even for a Marxist, but not for a lie, and not because they say we have to. No, we're stronger than that. Huh? We, we live to give, to serve, to hope, not to run in fear. And again, that becomes kind of the, the final thing. Uh, let me circle back to that. We have not touched on the first two verses, six and seven. And that's because they're the ones with the most need of undoing. Ah, you've heard me say this before if you've been listening carefully. You'll hear me say this again. Thank you again. Um, oh, I'm the mic. You didn't see any of that, I swear. I will submit to you my opinion is that the idea of humbling yourself, humbling yourself, is what most Americans think Christianity is about. And by that they mean you're supposed to go somewhere where they tell you how to be better than other people and then do it and then go out and think you're better than other people. That's what humble people do. That's what most Americans think of it. Now, I think inside the church, most people who say humble yourselves don't mean try to be better than other people. They mean Jesus said, humble yourself, so you got to do it. And we'll figure out what that means later. <laughs> the trick is, it, we don't know what it means to be humble. We think it means to maybe be something like not self-serving, which that would be loving more than humble. Um, we maybe think it means something like hospitable, but that would be hospitable more than humble. Humble is a different word. And the easy way to emotionally get to what it's really about is to chop off the ending and add on another ending that still makes it an American word. Humiliation is the word. He doesn't say make yourself humble. You can't. I mean, think that one through. Here I am. I'm arrogant, right? I'm not humble. I'm arrogant. As an arrogant man, I'm going to decide I shall achieve humility. What path do I have for this? Only arrogant ones. In fact, the desire to become more humble than I already am is an aspiration, which would not be very humble, I'm afraid. So the moment someone said to you, be humble, you're on a nonsense quest. 
That's what it comes down to. Whereas the moment someone says to you, you ought to be humiliated for what's already happened. Well, we all know that feeling probably better than we want to. I know when I have that feeling, I don't think I turn red, but I feel red. And it swells, I sweat, and I want to run and hide, and I want to defend myself. That's what happens when I'm humiliated. And yet, Christianity says that is the first thing in fearing God and knowing who he is. To be humiliated in the sight, in the hands of the mighty God. And now, particularly, again, what? Falling statues and burning flags. Oh, I better go. No, I better not go. I better be humiliated. This is my country. It's my silence. It's my lack of love for my neighbor, whatever his skin color may be. It's my fear of my neighbor. Be humiliated that my silence as a Christian continues to allow the world to run roughshod over my faith. And then know that at the proper time, he's going to exalt you. It's not be humiliated and stay there. It's not be ashamed and live a life of shame. It's to own the problem and then remember the solution. Be humiliated under the hand of the mighty God and at the proper time, he will exalt you. Now again here, I got to go Greek on us. Time. For Americans, times the clock, times the factory, times Wall Street, times all of the, the, the technical realities of being like this. Greek has a way to say that. It uses the word chronos, which you might hear in the word chronology. It was also more like father time as an old uh, before the gods kind of thing. But that's not the word here. The word here is kairos, not chronos. And, and kairos, kairos isn't like a clock. Kairos is like a season. And as spring has taught us, seasons, well, they're, they're different, aren't they, sometimes? But you kind of know that they move somewhere. And when you get to the season of fall and you've been sowing and watering all uh, summer long, and it, it's looking like it's right at that spot, you know there's a moment where it's harvest time now. And you get the bumper crop right now. And if you wait a week, it's not a good thing. Better get on that tractor, okay? That is how it works. And that moment is Kairos, harvest time, the height of time, the good time. Be humiliated before the sight of God over all the crap that's going on in our country and know that at the Kairos time when God's fine and ready, he will reveal himself as the antidote to all of it. And you already believe this. He will reveal you as exalted and resurrected the same way that he already is. So then between now and then, verse seven, cast all your anxieties on him. You know he cares for you. Whenever you find that fear, wherever it is, that anxiety, that, that terror, that stress, it's not about how I better give it to him and then he'll make me feel better. It's about stopping and knowing, wait a minute, who's in charge? Straight up, who's got this thing? Are my feet in his hands or mine? And the answer is both, but who's in charge? Him. Him. To him be dominion forever. Cast your anxiety on him, not as a law, but just because you can. It's where to go. And then remember what I will continue to preach to you, that while the rest of it falls, the heartbeat of the Lord's Supper keeps beating past all the fallen powers of history, both Old and New Testament. And that's your heartbeat, both individually and as a congregation and as the church throughout the world. Don't be afraid to say that to people. Don't be embarrassed about it. Own it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.